pray with me. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the privilege it is to worship you freely. Father, I pray that this morning as we open your word that we would understand it increasingly. Father, pray that we'd be transformed by it. Father, I pray that we would encounter the God of the word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who I haven't met, my name is Braxton Baker. I'm the youth director here, and I've been on staff at Oak Mountain for just over three years. And I did want to take the opportunity now. I know I haven't been able to say this uh, to you as a congregation, but on behalf of Kaylee and I and our kids, um, I could not be more grateful for this congregation, for the way that you've welcomed our family in. Uh, This has truly, in the past three years, become a home. Obviously, I work here on staff, but for this also to be such a loving and gracious home has meant more to Kaylee and I uh, than words could ever express. But uh, one of my first things uh, that I noticed here is obviously as Bob teaches, one of the things I've been most thankful for is his emphasis on grace. Obviously, Bob says that we are a grace-driven church. And one of the traditions we have in the youth house is every year we have summer interns. Uh, And so I took our summer interns. This was a few years ago, and I had four summer interns, three of which grew up here in the church. And we always have a meeting with Bob at the beginning of the summer. So we take uh, these four interns, we sit and it's jovial. Bob, obviously, you know Bob, he isn't an intimidator. So he's sitting there laughing with our interns and then it got serious, he sits them down. And if you've ever been in Bob's office, it's kind of like a library, there are books everywhere. And then Bob asked the question of these four interns. He asked them, what do you think grace is? What does grace mean to you? And you can imagine growing up in OMPC, a a grace church, you could kind of feel the the nerves of, I want to get, I want to get this question right. I better get this right. My senior pastor is asking me what grace is. So they have a long pause where no one says anything. And then finally, the first one speaks up and God's unmerited, God's unmerited favor. Bob's, Yeah more silence, more awkward silence. Somebody else says, God giving us good things that we don't deserve. Bob says, yeah. And then he asks, I think everybody pretty much said something like that. Then he asks, is that all? And then they got really nervous and they all kind of look at me and it's like, sounds good. And Bob goes on to explain what I think we all too often forget about God's grace. Yes, It's his saving power where God declares sinners as righteous. But if we stop at that point with grace, we've at best cut it off at its knees. We've at best given a half definition of grace. Grace is not only God's saving power, but it's also his transformational power. I really do believe that when we look at grace purely as past tense, as a saving power, it becomes slowly but surely irrelevant. It becomes sentimental, something that we still enjoy hearing about, that we think fondly of, but in terms of living our life in the here and now, it becomes irrelevant. It's kind of like one of the traditions we had as a family growing up, is every year my parents took me and my brothers to the Smoky Mountains. And I'll never forget one Christmas, I think I was 10 years old, 
walking down Christmas morning, I got my brand new first mountain bike. I'd always had a little kid bike, but this was the first 18-speed Raleigh bike. And I kept this bike until probably three years ago, Kaylee realized that I had not ridden that bike in over two decades, so she forced it to be thrown out. But that bike was awesome, right? I rode it everywhere as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old still, Loved that bike. It was my primary mode of transportation. But then I turned 16. And I bet I rode that bike less than five times after I turned 16. I still had fond memories of that bike, evidenced by the fact that it sat in my garage for a couple decades completely unused. But in any practical sense, that bike had become useless. So I want to ask you a question this morning. When you think about grace, what immediately comes to mind? Rhetorical question that I want you to answer in your head. When you think about grace, what comes to mind? Is it primarily an academic understanding? Is it theological precision? Or is it God's disposition towards you in Christ? think for me as I think about this word grace, it all too often is how do I explain Ephesians 2, which we'll get to in a few minutes. It's how do I explain the order of salvation as opposed to the simplicity of God's disposition toward us in Christ. For those of you who know my family, you know my my oldest son's name is Witt. His His actual name is Whitfield. He was named after one of my heroes from church history, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a contemporary of our founding fathers. And George Whitfield, prior to coming to Christ, had a a history in theater. And one of the things his opponents accused him of is emotional manipulation to kind of draw people to Christ. His kind of theatrical antics from the pulpit. And about these accusations, George Whitfield says in a sermon, I'm going to read this. I'll tell you a story. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675 was acquainted with Mr. Butterton, who was an actor at the time. One day, the Archbishop said to Mr. Butterton, inform me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things imaginary as if they were real? While we in the church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they're imaginary. Why, my Lord, says Mr. Butterton, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. He goes on to say, I will not be a velvet mouth preacher. Essentially saying, I will not f- speak of things as precious as grace, as though they are purely academic, as though they are purely theoretical, as though they were imaginary, as though they were distant doctrines. I'm convinced that as Christians, we all speak of grace in this way. Think of growing up and even hearing songs like Amazing Grace and being able to sing. We sang This is Amazing Grace this morning. And being able to sing that with no feeling, 
with no emotion because grace becomes a distant doctrine. So my question that I wanna ask to all of us and that I want us to all ponder this morning, and I think we've all either consciously or subconsciously asked this probably most days of our lives. What do I do when grace loses its wonder? What do I do when I sing of the doctrines of grace, when I sing about amazing grace, but it no longer seems amazing? What do I do when grace begins to subtly become like my Raleigh bicycle? It's sentimental, I have warm feelings to it, but it's irrelevant. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter one. And I ask you to stand for the hearing of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Beginning in verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day to now. In verse six, this is where we're gonna camp out this morning. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This doesn't contain God's word. It it doesn't become God's word. It is God's word given to us that we may experience God's supernatural, transformative grace and be seated. So I'm gonna try to answer that question. What do I do when grace seems to be amazing with three points? The first is rest in the good work Jesus has done in you. So we're gonna look at this from the aspect of past grace, present grace, and future grace. I'm gonna read verse six again. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It may seem like stating the obvious, but it's worth emphasizing that you did not begin a good work in yourself. You couldn't. If you could begin the good work of salvation in yourself, then Jesus's death on the cross was a cosmic and utter waste. There's nothing that you or I are able to do to merit salvation. And you need to understand something. If you understand anything from this point, I wanna, I wanna scream this. I think this is a point, especially our students misunderstand. You were not saved by faith. Hear me again, you're not saved by faith because if you are saved by faith, faith then becomes a work. And this is gonna seem like semantics, but I think it's a really important distinction that we understand. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If faith were a work, we have something to boast in. Again, I'll say it again. You are not saved by faith. Imagine a hitchhiker walking down an empty highway, thumb out. Cars pass, no one stops. More cars pass, no one stops. Finally, somebody stops and picks up this hitchhiker. They take him hours away to his desired destination. 
When we look back at that illustration, none of us would say that that hitchhiker was saved by his thumb. His thumb was really important, right? It was a cry for help. It was an acknowledgement that he couldn't deliver himself. But he was saved by the benevolence of a passerby. He was saved by the goodness of someone else. In the same way, you aren't saved by your faith, but by the object of your faith. Faith is a necessary component. You are saved through faith alone. Without faith, no one will be saved, but you're not saved by your faith. Why is this important? Because if you are saved by faith, if we subtly believe that faith is this work, this meritorious work that our salvation is based upon, what happens when that faith wanes? I just took our senior high to Okoe, our junior high to the edge, and and both of those become mountaintop experiences for our students. And praise the Lord, that's great. They come back, faith feels up here. But as they come back, slowly but surely, maybe not now, maybe weeks, maybe months, but the valley will come where faith isn't what it felt like. If their salvation is by faith, they stand on rocky ground all the time. You are not saved by faith, but the object of your faith. Therefore, you can rest in the good work Jesus has done in you. You can rest in that good work because you didn't do it. If it is a work that you indeed have begun in your own heart, then there is no rest. You've got to continue that, that work, and one day you've got to complete that work. Second point, first, rest in the good work Jesus has done in you. Second, fight with the power of the good work Jesus is continuing in you. First point, we sat in past grace. Second, present grace. And I think this is where most of us, if we're honest, really struggle to live. We understand our need for grace in the past tense. That as we come to Christ, we need him. We need him to change our hearts, to give us a perfect record. And we understand that as we stand before God, we pass from this life to the next, we will need Christ to distribute his grace. We need him to see Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, but we struggle to see grace in between those two. We think that we're saved by grace, but in the meantime, we gotta pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and get our act together. We've gotta somehow conform ourselves into the image and likeness of Jesus. Hear this, you are not only saved by grace alone, but you are sanctified by grace alone. Have any of you ever had a New Year's resolution that you failed in? The answer is yes, or you don't have New Year's resolutions. I don't think the overwhelming majority of us keep those. I had two this year. One was that I was gonna start exercising. I was in this group that uh, went at 5.30 in the morning and I did that really well for the end of December. And I tricked myself. I was like, if I do this in December, then it's not a New Year's resolution, right? I started in 2020, and so this can't be a hokey New Year's resolution. The other was that I was going to start enjoying black coffee. I had friends tell me it's like, yeah, it's an acquired taste, and I don't need the cream and sugar. 
I had the black coffee for 30 days straight and it still tasted like dirt water. <laughs> Exercising went really well for the month of January, but February came and then March got worse. It's kind of all of us with New Year's resolutions, right? The reason why we can be confident that this good work of salvation is gonna continue is that you didn't do it. So understand this, we're, we're not passive in our sanctification. I'm not suggesting to you that you're saved and then all of a sudden God just zaps you with sanctification. We aren't passive in our sanctification, but understand this, sanctification is every bit of miracle as justification. Sanctification is God drawing your affections and your heart increasingly into his own will. You can't do that. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't change your loves and your desires. I don't consider myself a picky eater, but the only food that I loathe is olives. I hate olives. I could choose to eat olives. It would be horrible, and I wouldn't want to do it, but I could do it. But I can't change my heart towards olives. I can't choose to love olives. In the same way, you can spend time in God's word, you can show up to church, but you can't choose to love God initially or increasingly. Again, I said to you before that we're not passive in sanctification. God, it is his work. I want you to understand that, that it is God's work, but we're not passive. The reason why I do what I do as a youth minister is God radically changed my life through youth ministry. I sat in a high school D group with a group of guys. My parents took me to church every Sunday growing up, but this new creation that I heard about, I saw with my eyes. I sat in community with. This is why, as a church, we do things like battle for the heart, life groups, gospel waltz groups, men and, men and women's Bible studies, discipleship groups for youth. The reason why we do these things is that God uses ordinary means of grace to accomplish the supernatural, the miraculous. Third and finally, first point, rest in the good work Jesus has done in you. Second, fight with the power of the good work Jesus is continuing in you. And finally, find hope in the good work that Jesus will complete in you. Again, we went past grace, present grace, and we'll finish with future grace. Verse six, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You're not only saved by God's grace, you're not only sanctified by God's grace, you will ultimately be glorified, perfected by God's grace alone. The reason why you can be confident that this good work is gonna be completed is that Jesus has done it, is doing it, and he cannot fail. If it were up to you and I, failure is an option. Imagine for just one minute, God withheld his gracious hand towards you. If God withheld his hand 
of providence, of, of, of drawing you more, of sanctification from you, you and I, 100% of the time, would walk away. As believers, when we understand future grace, we understand that our best days are always in front of us. No matter what our present circumstances are, we know that through our present circumstances, God is continually and always working all things together for our good. When I think of present circumstances and I think the worst of circumstances in my own life would be the year 2008, uh, I found out that, or my kidney began to, to hurt. Started having frequent kidney pain and I thought it was lower back pain. Uh, but one day, and it would come, and when it would come, it would be debilitating pain and I'd just kind of have to lay down, sleep for the night, and then when I'd wake up, it was fine. One day, I spent the night back at home and like any good mother, my mom made me go to the doctor and the doctor told me uh, that I had a kidney infection. So he gave me medicine and wasn't a kidney infection. It didn't get any better and it kept increasingly getting worse. So I got sent to a specialist and found out that I was born with a condition uh, called hydronephrosis where essentially my kidney uh, was blocked from draining to my bladder and it was slowly just swelling. And it lost the majority of its function. Sounds like a bad circumstances. What I didn't tell you is that prior to that, for the previous year and a half, I've been praying to God. God, I feel like I'm living two lives. I feel like as this group sees me here, they see one thing. As this group sees me here, they see another. A two-face. God, please take this out of my life. And God's most direct answer to prayer he's ever given in my life caused the most physical suffering. The worst thing that ever happened to me was also one of the best. There are times that our circumstances look as though the work that Jesus has done, he's continuing to do, he's given up on. He's taken a couple steps back. He's gotten sidetracked. But rest assured, Jesus does not have failure in his DNA. By his past, present, and future grace, Jesus has not only delivered you, but he will sustain you. Not only will he sustain you, he will ultimately complete that process. The reason why we're bored of grace, if that's you, the reason why it's lost its luster is that it no longer seems relevant. So back to the original question, what do I do when grace loses its wonder? Do I move on from it? Do I, do I treat grace as though it's a elementary doctrine that it's the milk of the gospel and that I really just need the meat and I need to move on to more important, uh, more lofty things, I want to suggest to you no. Grace is every bit as relevant to you today as it was the day you came to know Christ. Because without God's sustaining grace, 
all of us are doomed. I'll read one final passage and we'll close. Romans 7, starting in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, which is us as believers, right? This is the converted Paul. When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. There is a law, an old man that dwells in each and every one of us. Said it before, I'll say it again. If God does not continue the work, it will not be continued. Because the work that was began was not begun by you. The work that is being continued is not being continued by you. And the work that will be completed is not going to be completed by you. Father, thank you for the moments we get to be together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the power of your grace. Father, we thank you that salvation isn't a work that we have to perform for us. Father, we thank you that you, you have done that on our behalf. Father, I pray for those in this room who wrestle with the present need of grace like I do. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that grace isn't merely in our past tense. Father, we need your grace every bit as much today as we did yesterday and we will tomorrow. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and receive the benediction. And I would invite you to hold your hands out and receive God's grace to you. Now may this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon you now and always.